listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Organic. Programmatic. Innate. Frank Duarte is an American composer, songwriter, and conductor. His music transcends conventional boundaries, creating a programmatic approach full of luxuriant emotion, perception of color, and a palette of sonorities that make it organic and innate. Recipient of two Global Music Awards, Frank has also been granted two ASCAP Plus Awards and has had works performed throughout the United States, Japan, Greece, and the Republic of Colombia by professionals, collegiate performers, and community ensembles. A native of metropolitan Los Angeles, Duarte earned an Associates of Arts degree in music from Fullerton College, a Bachelor of Music degree in composition from California State University, Northridge, and a Master of Music degree in composition from Butler University. He is currently an instructor of record teaching contemporary music and composition at Texas Tech University. Well, uh, Frank, good to meet you. And uh, first of all, welcome to Adjective. Uh, Thank one you. Of our, one Thank of our you. newest uh, Composer Collective members. Uh, we're really excited that you joined us and can't wait to get to know you and your music through through this and, you know, perhaps in the future, some more of the silly kind of informal podcasts that we do. Um, <laughs> those, those are always a lot of fun. So we will check out four of your works tonight. And uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to start off with your piece, uh, Song for Mother Gaia. Uh, this is for mm-hmm. chorus, and mm-hmm. we're we're going to be listening to the choral version uh, tonight. But you've also arranged this for marimba, and it seems like you've you're either doing or have done a pe- uh, arrangement for this for orchestra. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so th- it seems like this piece <laughs> has been uh, successful for you. Yes, it has. I I can't say it's selling like hotcakes just yet, <laughs> but it's I hopefully knocking on wood. Right, we just started the year, so yeah. it's uh it's been a really interesting piece, very nice piece. Yes. So. so, what is the text, and where does it come from? Like, how did you find it? What mm-hmm. made you want to set this particular text? So, song for Mother Gaia. I composed it uh, actually around this time, uh, two years ago. Mm-hmm. I was visiting my my mother. Uh, I'm from Southern California, and uh, I was there for a couple of days. I was there for her birthday, uh, and then my birthday as well. We were like back to back, and so we usually just do a kind of a, a little weekend uh, trip. And uh, you know, at that point, you know, I, I was longing for, to write a, a choral composition, something, <laughs> anything besides my Christmas carol that I had already written. I wanted to do a kind of a standalone choral piece. And I was going through poems, lots of poems. And, you know, I, I, yeah, I was having dinner with my mother and I mentioned, um, you know, I wanted to write this choral piece. And she said, well, you know, you should write about something that people don't usually write about. And I said, well, that that would be nice. <laughs> that would be nice. But what is that? What is that subject? Right. You know, <laughs> um, she said, what about Paris? It's been done. <laughs> <laughs> you know what about you know dan- american dances it's been done everything has been done and uh and then she said i'm pretty sure no one has ri- written anything about um you know plants and earth or, or something or if they have you know they they steer away from the uh kind of political activism behind you know the the whole concept of recycling and loving earth and whatnot and 
you know, I went to her, her garden. We have a wonderful, beautiful garden. And I got inspiration from there and from what my mother told me. Then went back to my poems that I was already perusing at that time. And I said, I, there has to be something here. And so the, you know, the Saratizio, the poem that I, that I got was from a collection of poems that she had already published. And it's from June night. And, you know, the poem talks about, you know, you really loving earth. Um, obviously, I don't know if that was in her head or when she was mm -hmm. writing this, but the reception that I got was, you know, you're writing, you're loving earth, you're writing about loving earth. You know, you, you, you give me so much. What can I give to you besides my, my mortality? Eventually, after we pass on, you know, you know, for some people, we we have this afterlife of, mm -hmm. you know, rejoining Earth and, and rejoining that spiritual being. Because my mother is also indigenous, she's from the Zapotec people. It kind of fit the theme of the whole spirituality of, as yeah. well. So I decided to set it to to music, and that's it. And it has been very, you know, receptive. Thankfully, I have been asked to write it for. Uh, you know, orchestra, write a version for band. I did a version for marimba. And then next week, they're announcing uh, the release of the flexible ensemble version. <laughs> you got you got to have a flex ensemble at I this know, point, right? I know, I'm getting on this train and I feel like Percy Granger grabbing his pieces and just, yeah. uh, you know, composing it for different mediums. And I mean, that's how you get a lot of performances, especially sure. during this time you probably know we can't stick, you know, 200 people in a room. Of course. Uh, but if we have, you know, six or eight, you know, performance, a very small performance might happen. So we'll see. So yeah. thankfully, you know, it's, 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 it's going out and about into the public and it has been uh, very wonderfully received by, by the public. Yeah. I mean, that, that idea of, um, you know, just kind of being flexible as, as flexible as you can be with uh, with your work is is a is a great idea. I mean, uh, and and of course, you know, like uh, marimba is a perfect is a perfect instrument to represent. Um, you know, a choral piece. Obviously, you don't have the words, but you know, with uh, with roll. I used to be a percussionist, so um, with rolling on marimba, I mean, it's just it. If you get a, uh, a reverberant enough space, you could actually mistake oh a, a marimba for for a choral ensemble. So that, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I've yeah. never I've never written a choral piece. Like, how do you approach it? Like you said, you you had one and you wanted to do another one. So what is it about uh, what is it about choral music that was really attractive? Why did you want to like go back to it? Uh, it's funny you asked that because I, I you know, I, I never classified, well, I never classified myself as a, you know, band composer or a choral composer. Mm -hmm. I think most people know me for my band works. Mm -hmm. But since I started writing the, the, that piece two years ago and after my Rejoice piece, I know I've gotten a couple of inquiries like, when's your next piece coming out? Mm -hmm. And everybody asks me the same thing. Why did you go to, <laughs> for some people, it's almost like you're going to the dark side, <laughs> the unknown of, of, yeah. of choral writing um, per se. But quite frankly, um, no pun intended, uh, mm -hmm. why not? But uh, I started my musical education as a violinist 
and as a chorister as well. And uh, that went from elementary school. I stopped in middle school because I joined the band and there sure. was never enough time to to do anything else besides band. But uh, once I got into high school, I did orchestra, I did band and choir. I was a tenor, baritone in, in the chorus. I you know played violin or viola. Uh, depending on you know who was absent that day mm-hmm. and uh you know i played trumpet in the band and i think i have always kept that choral in me i i just never really wrote for it because i i, I thought you know you need to specialize in something you, mm-hmm. you can't write for everything obviously as you probably know that's not true yeah you can <laughs> write for everything our students to diversify you know <laughs> write for everything write for you know, right for a bazooka, and you know, you know, two wind chimes or something, you know. Um, but I started writing choral a lot, especially after I wrote my big piece, Rejoice, which, which is for chorus, orchestra, and herald trumpets, however many you need. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, working with the choral department at Butler University, that really just kind of encouraged me and propelled me more to, to write a lot of choral music. So mm-hmm. I think it was... Um, it was there. I think the motivation was not there yet uh, yeah. to answer your question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who are, mm-hmm. I mean, I I am just so like, I'm, I'm so not in that world. And I'm, I'm actually like at, at uh, Ohio university where I teach, you know, we've got a fantastic uh, choral director. We have a fantastic uh, high voices uh, ensemble. And I'm like, man, I should get into this, you know, like I should really, because I've, I've totally, you know, I've written songs and and stuff and I love working with text. Mm -hmm. Who are some composers of choral music that you're into? Oh my God. I love Arvo Parrott. I mean, he is, he is wonderful. Uh, Not a lot of people like him. (laughs) That's not a name that really comes out for a lot of people. They ask, who's he, you know? Um, but, uh, he's, he's a wonderful composer. And the reason why I really like him is because if you take a lot of his works and you dissect them and you analyze them, he makes a big composition essentially out of nothing, mm-hmm. you know, one interval, two intervals, you know, there, uh, you know, piano pieces that, you know, he, he writes a whole an entire piece, you know, with, you know, two intervals or two notes. And so it's, it's hard in the sense that you you you're trying not to sound boring you're trying to sound interesting for x amount of time and you're really trying to juice those colors those notes everything and so uh, you know arvo paired is is a big 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 person that i listen to his works i get inspired a lot by him i also get inspired a lot by benjamin Britten. um mm-hmm. also someone that uh, you only really get to hear when they make his really, really huge big pieces out in the public. Um, and he is a person that I like to see because he is good at setting music, uh, text to music. Mm-hmm. Ralph Vaughn Williams is also another person. Ralph Vaughn Williams, um, you know, I have him on my playlist sometimes, uh, on my Sunday playlist. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that he would rearrange some hymns from, you know, the Anglican church tradition. And, you know, let's make this line interesting. You know, he would put a descant on top of already, uh, an already known hymn. Um, it really makes you look at the writing 
almost at at a at the arranger's side point of view, right? You know, we always take a look at things as composers, but uh, sometimes we never take a look at things as if we were arrangers. So Raphael Williams, Benjamin Britten, definitely Errol Pear are some of the composers I look to when I'm writing choral music. Yeah, this def- this piece definitely has um, that harmonic language that is consonant, but also contains those like, like really nice clusters um in in the chords is that kind of emblematic of your other work or was that a choice for particularly for uh for this setting or particularly for choir i think when i was writing the piece that is the interval i chose to represent that that climatic moment mm-hmm. um i'm i'm a very very you know, I'm a notation person. I'm, you know, I, I'm really careful when it comes to notation, my choice of notes. Um, even when it's new, you know, very, very avant-garde new music, I, I choose notes very carefully because I'm listening in my head what I want and I'm writing it out. Mm-hmm. You see, I, I'm also kind of an old school person that I write a lot of things by paper. A lot of mm-hmm. my orchestra stuff, choir and orchestra stuff, I still have my sketches and paper. So I so I take a look at things. I try to sing them out. I try to imagine in my head what those intervals would sound like. So I think it was it was more of a compositional choice rather than a, an artistic choice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so who are we going to hear on this on this recording? Is uh, from Portland State University. Their ch- chamber chorus, so their top chorus. Uh, this is conducted by one of their graduate students. I forgot what her name is. <laughs> Hopefully she doesn't listen to the podcast. She'll, she'll think I, she wasn't that special. <laughs> but uh, even Sperry, the director, organized the recording uh, with uh, his singers. And he had a wonderful, wonderful graduate student conduct this. So she did a sp- spectacular job. Great. So this is Song for Mother Gaia.
So let's move on to your piece, Catching the Sounds in the Air. And this is a, a solo flute piece. Um, who did you write this piece for? I wrote this piece for a good friend of mine uh, back in undergrad. I actually don't even know where he is. We kind of lost communication mm-hmm. a bit when I was moving uh, to the Midwest and such. Uh, and obviously before like the whole uh, TikTok and whole uh, oh, communication, yeah. social media these days, now you can communicate with everything and everybody. Uh, I wrote it for a, a good friend of mine. His name is Alfredo Munoz. Um, this was written as part of my undergraduate recital at California State University, Northridge. Mm-hmm. This was written uh, early, early February, early March, and I ended it, um, finished it around uh, early April. So he had a couple of weeks before the premiere. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, in your notes, you talk about dark air, cool air, and light air for the three separate movements we'll hear. Can you talk about those distinctions and how you kind of create those ideas musically? Yes. So this is a three movement piece. And as part of this piece, I imagined the flute as just an ordinary pipe. And I was trying to look at something, either a painting or a book or something that would tell me, hey, these are a set of pipes. And I looked at this picture of uh, Le Centre Pompidou, which is located in Paris. uh, And it's right next to Urquham. And I thought, ooh, I'm trying to imagine this center come to life on a very windy day. Does this thing make any sounds? <laughs> so I, I try to kind of make, make this fiction, this narrative in my head where these pipes would, um, I guess, make a sound on a very, very windy day. Um, and based on those pitches, I would try to create a three movement piece. So I I talk about cool air, dark air, uh, essentially because sometimes the flute uh, in its lower lower registers, um, some of the sounds that that the the instrument creates, uh, a lot of people kind of get scared. I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know if it's part of the tamper. I don't know if it's part of the color. But uh, a lot of people, you know, when it gets there, it's like, oh, what are they going to do? You know, mm-hmm. what is this person going to do with their flute? Um, and, you know, and I talk about cool air as well, you know, uh, because uh, I wanted the flute to have this jazzy feeling. Again, we're talking about pipes. We're talking about being cool, being sassy, being jazzy mm-hmm. with, with the instrument. And I decided to kind of take that entire narrative and just put it into perspective into this piece. So each movement uh, depicts a certain mood, a certain attitude. And essentially, that's how the piece came about. You talk about um, serial composition in your notes. Um, How are you Mm -hmm. using serial procedures in this work? Well, I didn't go very uh, Schoenberg in here, <laughs> per se. Uh, That's probably this, okay. Uh, as you probably know, when you're uh, preparing for a recital, the last thing you want to do is uh, integers or anything mm-hmm. like that. 
but I try to kind of get inspired by the music of Schoenberg in one particular movement. Um, the entire composition uh, is not in 12 tone, it's not serial, period. Uh, but I did want to get influenced by some of those elements and incorporate them in the piece. Otherwise, I could have just gone with, you know, something that could have sounded, you know, pentatonic and cute mm -hmm. <laughs> and such. I could have thought about the flute as a pipe, right? Or as a Latin American, uh, you know, flute down in the Andes, but I didn't want to take that approach. I wanted mm -hmm. to take the flute and have this kind of contemporary, uh, you know, pre-World War II, post-World War II color, timbre. So I was messing with a kind of serialism, but not quite. Uh, I was messing with architecture, not quite. Um, and I was, you know, messing with all of those things and trying to make uh, this composition. So uh, I, I think I, I put in my notes <clears throat> that I sometimes take a look at this as a collage, mm -hmm. right? And a collage is, it's, for, for many people, it's, it's a painting or a mural or a work of art. But it's not sometimes defined unless you really define it. It it has smaller elements to the composition. Sure. So the overall arching form of the composition for me is almost like a collage. You know, you got a little bit of here, you got a little inspiration from here, and then you put it together and you make this composition. Sure. Mm -hmm. Writing solo music is one of the most difficult things to do, I think. It is tough, uh, very um, tough. <laughs> so how do you how do you approach writing for a single voice? You know, what what things are you thinking about to like keep the piece moving? Mm -hmm. Well, you want me to be ultra ultra honest here. I really ask the player what their limitations are, mm -hmm. as you you know, as you can think. You know, a lot of us composers we want to write just a bunch of notes and sure. sometimes we ask people almost to do the impossible like you know play the you know the the flute in a bath time or, or something you know <laughs> uh make it resonate um but i when i write solo music and i've written quite a number of pieces at this point to kind of have figured it out one of the first things that i do is i meet with the player i actually sit down we have a coffee we have you know pizza we have i don't know taco bell if you're feeling like it and i talk what does your repertoire look like who are you playing who do you not play uh may i hear a couple of recordings of you uh performing uh whether it be on youtube or do you have a concert coming up so i i take a look at the performer and then after all of that, I start writing the composition. I never start really writing something unless I hear the performer or there's a recording. And partially, the reason why I do that is uh, for two main reasons. One, I talked about the limitation of things. You know, my hands right here, they tend to be, you know, pretty average hands, a little bit on the bigger side for some people. For other folks, they might have smaller hands. So if I'm asking them to do something on solo marimba and they physically cannot do that, mm -hmm. then probably the piece is going to be having a, uh, you know, 
a pause. You know, we're going to be talking about what can you do so we can keep going with the composition. Or, or sometimes, you know, we might have to rewrite something. I might have to rewrite something. Uh, so that's number one, limitations. And then number two, um, when you're writing for solo uh, uh, instruments, I always think about a relationship that we're having with this person. It's a two-way street. So I want to make sure that the performer uh, knows what I'm writing. They know my vocabulary. They also understand uh, what I'm capable of. Um, I think I'm capable of writing many, many different things in many different genres at this point. But if you're going to ask me to write you a piece that, you know, requires cannons and <laughs> you only have two hands and two feet, I think I'm going to ask you that I'm going to uh, write something else. Can I write something else? You know, mm -hmm. uh, again, I also have my limitations, right? So we, we have to take a look at, uh, at things that we can go ahead and do. Um, other smaller things when it comes to writing a solo music that I think I, I, I take a look at are, <clears throat> uh, if the performer ha has a history, if they really want to, uh, commission me to write a piece for a specific event for a specific, um, book or a specific, uh, you know, piece of art, you know, there mm -hmm. are composers out there that sometimes uh, don't inquire <laughs> mm -hmm. about certain things like that. And I think it's always important. Again, um, it's a two-way street and I yeah. really enjoy that aspect of it when I'm writing solo music. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so important to like get to know the performer and have a relationship with them. I mean, one of the, whether it's solo or ensemble or whatever, one of the things, one of my, when I'm working with other performers, I, I do the same thing like you, you know, before we start writing the piece, I got to meet them. You know, we got to talk, we got to, we got to figure out what this thing is going to be because it's, it's kind of a waste of time to like start writing and then realize halfway into it that oh well they can't do that or they're not interested in that or or whatever um but one of i think one of the my favorite questions to ask them is like where do you want this to go on your concerts you know are you do you need an opener do you need a closer do you need that second piece that's like kind of quiet and reserved or or you know something like that like how is this going to function within your other rep um, when you're, when you're putting on a concert to know, to kind of know, like, well, you know, like I just had a conversation with the percussionist that I'm going to be working with. And he's like, well, I've kind of already got a couple like vibraphone pieces on this, on this program. So you could do that, but it might be a lot of vibraphone. I'm like, okay, I think I'm going to go the complete opposite now. Like I'm going to go totally, <laughs> right? totally non-pitched. You know, if you've mm -hmm. already got two vibraphone pieces, maybe that's enough. Um, yeah. Let's, let's make it different. Let's add, you know, vibraphone with, uh, I don't know, you know, Bubusuela or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's just like, you know, to, to, to know like how they are going to use it because I, I feel like that's so important um, to consider when you're when you're thinking about mm -hmm. not only the first performance but the fifth, the eighth, the tenth performance of a piece. You know how does it function in a you know a fairly traditional concert if it's if it's like a recital piece. 
you know, mm-hmm. because yeah, ev- like everyone has a, uh, or, or there are a lot of, you know, solo flute pieces that are just like crazy, you know, like, but just, just going nuts on the flute. But then it's like, okay, well, obviously there's a lot out there for that. Should I write something that's contrasting to that? Should I write something that's, you know, like reserved or, you know, I I just think it's a, it's a good idea to have that conversation with the, uh, with the player to know like, okay, how, where, where are you going to, what are you looking for? Most of all, you know? Mm, Yeah. And it's very important. It's very important. I can't stress it enough that when you're writing for solo, even a duet, you know, I think even, I think even that is even more important too, when you're, when you're doing two people and yourself, (laughs) Yeah, it's like, Hey, let's figure things out. Right. Scheduling and such. Mm -hmm. And, Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes we don't do that enough. I think. Yeah. I don't know. I I, I don't want to speak for everybody. Sure. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Well, let's listen to this. So this. Uh, who who are we going to hear on this recording? So this recording is uh, Alfredo Munoz. So the uh, you know the flute player that premiered it. Awesome. This is catching the sounds in the air.
All right, we're going to kind of shift gears and go to electronic music. Um, your piece, Behold Aquarius. So, oh yeah. First off, I love that the document that you sent me. You know, you were talking about uh, the sound sources, and I love that it included tequila shots as a sound source. I mean, that must have been a fun recording session. <laughs> it was very, very interesting. Um, Yes. <laughs> so very, so, very interesting. Yeah, tell me about the story of this work. It's programmatic, correct? So what is it's the? It's very programmatic. It's very programmatic. Uh, you know, similar to uh, what I was talking to you about with uh, catching the sounds in the air. I I created this narrative, this this kind of little short story, where I. Uh, you know, was looking at water and I'm thinking, ooh, what can we narrate with water uh, around? And I'm an Aquarius, by the mm-hmm. way. So a uh, big uh, water fan right here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I created this narrative where uh, Aquarius, you know, the constellation would uh, transfigure into this metamorphical, you know, human being. And then he would come down to earth, would see, uh, you know, his planet the planet, uh, you know, not being very resourceful with water. And so he uh, decided to tell everybody, hey, you know, look what you are all doing. Uh, You need to uh, save on the water tab. And if you don't, I'm going to, you know, create this flood. And essentially people did not do that. And he created the flood and people asked him to stop and... He said, I will stop, uh, but if it happens again, you know what's going to happen. So <laughs> that's essentially this, this, uh, this story that I created, and I wrote the composition revolving around that, uh, that storyline, and uh, that's pretty much how it goes. <laughs> so what uh, – I mean, this, this has somewhat of an environmentalist – bent to it i think very very environmentalist yeah is that uh, in your in your first piece we talked about that had you know uh, a kind of similar idea is this a theme that you keep coming back to well i think it's the california in me (laughs) yeah i think uh you know no matter what people's political backgrounds or where they're coming from i think coming from a place like southern california where from, you know, as young as the age of five, we're told to recycle certain things. And, you know, this is where you put your trash. This is where you put your mm-hmm. recyclables. This is where, how you uh, save water, how you save, you know, the planet, you know. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I wouldn't call myself, uh, you know, a hardcore environmentalist. I think there are other people that do it way much better than I do. But I think it's it's part of who I am and it's part of, you know, how I grew up. So mm-hmm. with the song from Mother Gaia, you know, we're talking about plants, we're talking about nature. And with Behold Aquarius, we're literally talking about, you know, saving water, <laughs> being mm-hmm. resourceful with water. Yeah. So I mean, especially, you know, especially now that in the past decade or more, you know, California has a fifth mm-hmm. season and that's the wildfire season. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it could not be more important. Yes. Um, so, 
at at a certain uh, that you're you're using a lot of uh, uh, a lot of water sounds in this, yes. um, but there's also like this. Uh, it almost sounds like a phone ringing or an alarm. Like, what's the significance yeah. of that later on in the piece? Well, I used a lot of water. <laughs> yeah. I kind of went against my own little story uh, plot line right there. But uh, the alarm is actually a uh, well. There are two alarms technically. One is a phone, a a just you know regular good old. Uh, I think it was like a Nokia or something that I used. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of those very old, uh, uh, reliable uh, yeah. ringtones. And then I used an alarm, and part of that was the significance of you know the destruction of hey. This is what's happening. This is your alarm, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Think about this. And if it happens again, again, like I said in the storyline, you will know what it happened. So the piece is more, it's less about uh, me being environmentally conscious. It's more a, a wake up call. Right. A wake up call. Yeah. People regarding the, the resource, you know, and, and water. Some of the water sounds, especially at the very end, are so tactile. I mean, were those created? Were those created like in a tub or something? Uh, some of them were. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> some of them were created in on toilets. Okay. <laughs> and I, I can save you save you the graphic for for, for, for next time. Got it. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, some of them were created in in different settings because. You know, let's face it. If I have fifty bottles of water, and you know, they're all going to sound the same in my kitchen table. Mm-hmm. But um, if I were to take out that kitchen table and put it on, I don't know, inside the restroom, or I don't know why I would do that, but I, I didn't do that. But you're getting the figure. When you change things, location matters, sound matters, size, volume, square feet—they all matter when you're recording different sounds and you're trying to recreate different sounds. So some of the sounds were created, for example, like I said, in the bathtub, some of them were created uh, on top of the toilet, at the bottom of the toilet. Some of them were created, uh, for example, the uh, infamous, uh, the tequila, you know, shots, right? You know, tequila has a different density than water. It's going to create a different sound. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of the, the water, I put them in milk cartons various different milk cartons mm-hmm. i shook them that creates a different sound than twirling it so uh, various different locations i would say overall this piece contains probably close to 65 67 samples mm-hmm. i and, mean yeah. there there are points where it almost feels like like you know i I, I do a lot with electronic music and it's it's mm-hmm. extremely hard for me to listen to pieces without trying to figure out how the sounds were made, you know, mm-hmm. which is exactly what, you know, Pierre Schaeffer was like, no, 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 <laughs> don't do that. Do reduce listening, which let's be honest here. I think Schaeffer was a little off the mark. Most people are going to think like, Oh, I hear that. I recognize that I have the associations that come along with it, but I'm listening to it and I'm like, okay, I like, it's almost, uh, like Luke Ferrari, you know, Mm, 
Okay. He he was when he was recording. What makes you think of that? If I may ask well, you. Well, <laughs> I, I, no, no, no. I know I'm, you're the one asking questions. But <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying that your I'm not saying that your music reminds me of Luke Ferrari. But mm-hmm. what I was saying was mm-hmm. Luke Ferrari when he recorded. I'll take it as a compliment, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> when he was when he was talking about recording sounds, he was you know talking about like all of uh, all of the environment is in the sound. Like you can you can hear something and recreate the picture of where it was recorded mm-hmm. based on all the information you're getting in the sound as long as it hasn't been you know too manipulated so you know when i'm listening to the end of it it almost sounds like okay you've got a st- like still water sitting in a tub you've got a microphone you know about like two two three feet away so it doesn't get wet and um, it's almost like you're hitting the water or something. There's something so like textural and tactile about those sounds that yeah. I I, re- I really I, I really appreciate that because yeah. you know I'm glad you picked that up. <laughs> you're very well, close. You know, yeah. you're very close. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that yeah, that's awesome. So, well, let, yeah, let's let's take a listen to this. So, this is uh, a fixed media piece called "Behold Aquarius."
Uh, this is your last piece we're going to look at. Another solo piece. This is for solo clarinet. Um, and this is called Psychosis. Um, and you talk about, uh, in, in the notes, uh, you talk about a loss of contact with reality. And, I mean, oh my God. I think over the past year, I think we've all been experiencing a little... A little more a little than too we, much of that. a little too much and a loss of contact with reality. So what, uh, what drove you to write this piece at the time when you wrote it? Oh, wow. Let's, uh, whirlwind back to 2014. So uh-huh. 70 years ago. So around this time, my vocabulary was expanding. So, this was, fun fact, this was the first solo piece, the first piece that really changed the way I was writing at that moment. Mm-hmm. So most of, the, most of my works pre-psychosis uh, were very, very tonal, uh, you know, very conservative when it comes to writing. And my, <clears throat> my teacher at that time, who comes from Bulgaria, he writes a lot of, of piano music and I'm listening to it and he's practicing while, you know, I'm going through the hallways and I'm thinking, I don't know what he's playing. I don't know what's that piece of music. I don't know if he wrote that. I want to write like him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whatever's coming out of this, you know, piano office. And, uh, you know, we talked and he said, hey, you know, listen to a couple of works and uh, in this genre, and you know, my my mind just just went you know kind of blank because I'm thinking, oh my god, this is so good, this is so good writing, but what is this? Mm-hmm. I don't see a one chord, I don't see a four chord. Right. Where's the five chord? Where's the five seven chord? And at this point, I'm going crazy because obviously I want to write like this, but I'm I'm losing again my own sense of reality with with the fact that it doesn't look like what I've studied in harmony class and, you know, with the Bach chorales and none of that. Right. So what is this? So um, after taking a, 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 you know, merry-go-round on on YouTube and looking at a couple of videos and look at at some of these scores, I started slowly composing for a solo instrument. Now at that, at that time, actually there's a history to this piece at that time, a very good friend of mine <clears throat> who uh, decided to later on take a different route with uh, you know, his professional career, uh, he was playing uh, clarinet, bass clarinet to be specific, and he said, hey, you know, if, if you want to write something in that style, you should go ahead and write it for me. I said, oh, my God, what a wonderful opportunity. And again, you know, we did the whole, you know, meet and greet, let's have coffee and let's see this. And I started writing this composition. <clears throat> and, you know, at that point as well, my teachers at that time, they were looking at what I was writing. They said, oh, my God, this is very good. Start listening to more of this music, you know, to get your motivation going, your, mm-hmm. your, your, your wheels greased and everything. Well, uh, six days before the premiere, he, he tells me, I'm sorry, I cannot premiere this. Oh, my God. And I said... <laughs> I am sorry, but what? And he said, Frank, look, you're a wonderful person. I, I, you know, I love you to death, but I just can't do it. And, and you know, I told him, I said, when were you supposed to tell me, you know? 
<laughs> because you've been practicing the composition, right? And I understand, you know, he was probably busy or, or something, you know, if, if they, someone can't do it, obviously yeah. we have to be very understanding. And I asked him, I said, do you know anybody in the, you know, the clarinet studio that might be willing to do that? I'll, you know, bring them dinner. I'll cook them dinner. I'll pay them, you know, you yeah. know, SOS, help. At this point, anything. <laughs> and, Just let's make it work. Uh, and I literally, I went to every single person in the studio and they said, no, your piece is very, very hard. Well, one of my other colleagues said, look, I can't play your composition, but I know this person and he can play anything. I said, no. He said, no, I'm serious. He can play anything and everything. You throw it at him. He's probably has played it. He has this for breakfast every morning. So I decided to email him or call him. Again, this is back in the day, right? Where, mm -hmm. you know, no, I don't know if Snapchat existed, but, you know, probably, possibly. I don't know. 2014. Possibly. Uh Maybe. <laughs> it, it was like I, I feel definitely like this is back in the Jurassic era. We're talking well, wait, about like back wait, in the wait, day. Four, Fourteen. <laughs> God, when did I do? All right. So I'm trying to place this. I did the uh, the Charlotte New Music Festival in 2014, and I remember one of the other composers who was there <laughs> with me. Like they were on, yes. Yeah, so Snapchat was was available in twenty fourteen. Was available. Okay. Well, it was a new I'm thing, not a though. Snapchat person, as you can as you can tell. But obviously, uh, so, I, it was my first experience with it, so it was new. So, <laughs> so I, I gave him a call, and and his his name is Ryan, and actually he became one of my very very good. Uh, he's one of my best friends. As a matter of fact, I was just on the phone today, uh, you know, with him. Um. Mm -hmm. We, uh, I, I gave him the piece. I told him, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm having this premiere in four days now, right? Because it took, you know, two days to contact him and, and such. And he's on the phone and he said, Okay, hold on and wait. I'll, I'm, I'm at the library. Let me look at this piece of music. And I'm on the phone. And he is literally dictating this piece in time. Perfect pitch, by the way. <laughs> And, and he's saying, is, does it go like the... I'm like, yeah, can you do that? <laughs> at the, you know, at this, you know, new music recital. And so honestly, he had two days to get the piece in his hands, right, to, you know, have like a little recording, send it to me to check if it was okay. I told him, just get over here and perform the piece. And he performed the piece. And I remember at the premiere... People just looked at me as if that is the piece. Whoa. And I was looking at myself. I was trying to not like, you know, <laughs> do anything like shout and say, yeah, you know, but yeah. I, I had my jaws. They were down to the floor. Uh -huh. I couldn't believe it. You know, he played it perfectly. So not a lot of people play the piece <laughs> because mm -hmm. it's very difficult by its nature. But uh, Ryan has been one of the biggest champions of this composition ever since it landed on his hands. Yeah, I was going to ask. As the whole story with Psychoscus. I was going to ask who it is because he really, really sells um, some of the more gestural ideas of the piece. I mean, what, what's the guy's last name? Ryan? So his, his name is Ryan Espinoza. He got his undergrad from uh, Cal Arts. So 
CalArts in California, Valencia, yep. California. All they do is new music, mm-hmm. <laughs> period. Uh, I'm sure they do classical music. And then he has a master's from the University of North Texas. Okay, yeah. So two yeah. very Man, fine that, schools. That that kid can play, I got to say. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. So um, can you also talk about the form of this work and how that kind of relates to the idea of uh, psychosis? Yes. So the the form of the composition is just a plain good old, you know, A, B form, you know, mm-hmm. just like that. It starts with a very, you know, well, the whole piece is solo, but it starts very slow. It kind of build up uh, it, the notes build up to the, the B section. And the B section is where we have this whole virtuosic um, uh, capability of the player. So the beginning of the piece, the tonality is centered around A, the mm-hmm. note A, mm-hmm. and the B section, the tonality is not centered on A. Uh, we, we explore through various uh, different tones. We kind of start with, you know, E and then we flat and uh, we go to like G sharp and then we come back to G and we explore like almost the whole circle of fifths Mm -hmm. if you want to, if you want to think of it in a very short amount of time, by the way. But um, the overall form, A, B. Right. So, so it was, yeah, it was that like, it was the virtuosic section as a listener. I'm listening to it. And I was like, okay, there's the break. There's the loss of contact Mm -hmm. with, with Mm -hmm. reality. And you know, that's, it sounds like that's even more confirmed with your, uh, with your harmonic, um, you know, choices like, okay, a is reality. And then we get to virtuoso land and it's like, okay, we're not doing a anymore. Yeah. Uh, And I think as a, as a, as a young composer, I, I, I still look at this piece. I'm thinking, Man, I really just went for it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I think because it was it was like getting a brand new car. Let's see what I can do, right? Right. Let's <laughs> take so it for this, a spin. Piece, it's like let me throw in multiphonics and let me throw this slide and let me throw this and let yeah. me throw that. You know. Awesome. Well, great. Let's listen to it. So this is Psychosis, as performed by Ryan Espinosa.
Last question that I always ask all the composers and uh, artists who are on the podcast. How did you find music as the thing that you wanted to pursue for your life? Part of it has to be that my maternal side of the family, they've always been lovers of music uh, till this day, as a matter of fact. You know, you're cleaning, you put on the radio, you listen to music. Uh, you're studying, you listen to some music. And when I was growing up, a lot of music was uh, really a part of the family home. Uh, my mother comes from a very, very small village <clears throat> in Mexico. She's here, you know, she's not in Mexico, but, mm -hmm. you know, she's here. But, um, and we have uh, the village bands, you know, so think Charles Ives, you know, uh, mm -hmm. his uh, music where he has some of the uh, country bands and such. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes, you know, back in the day, when we had VHS, <laughs> now we're talking back in the day. Uh, we would get some, uh, you know, uh, tapes. I can't believe I'm saying these words, tapes. And we would look at them on the VHS player. We would, uh, you know, look at the TV and we would listen to, to music. And so we were always surrounded with music. I didn't really start with the music until I was in fourth grade. I started as a violinist, a very uh, gracious uh, teacher of mine. Uh, saw the talent that I was... Uh, you know, having on the instrument. And he said, what do you like to play in my ensemble for uh, the Christmas concert? And I said, sure. I didn't even know what this Christmas concert was all about. And I think that that concert, along with, you know, you know, various different things when, when I was going through elementary school with the recorder and everything, all of those little elements planted a seed into me so I could pursue music. Mm -hmm. I never really stopped <clears throat> playing and performing uh, with the exception of one year. And that was my sixth grade. And that was when I decided to uh, study the arts as in the visual arts, paintings mm -hmm. and pottery and ceramics. So, you know, music for me has been has been very gracious, has been very generous in my life. It has uh, changed me into the person who I am. Mm -hmm. And I think essentially for me <clears throat> to, to really describe it, music has been part of my life because I started from this humble background and my beginning of music was a humble uh, you know, pursuit. I, I, I thought about being a musician as kind of a hobby, you know. Mm -hmm. I'd never really thought about it being my main profession. I wanted to be a, a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wanted to go to law school. And uh, my mom said, yay, <laughs> law school, <laughs> a big box. You know? uh, my dad wanted me to uh, be a doctor. So either or was fine. And then I told them, hey, I really want to become a musician. And my dad was great. And my mom was not a big fan of it. <laughs> now she's <laughs> one of my biggest supporters. But uh, you know, after many years of, of doing this now uh, <clears throat> as a composer, she's one of my 
biggest advocates yeah uh, yeah in my profession so that's yeah that's my little story with, with music you're gonna be a lawyer yay actually yay. i think music yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we all have that conversation with our parents. I know, I know. And it, for she, she's you know, a, a couple of years ago, I think four, four years ago, um, when I was still doing my master's, she said, "Are you sure you're not going there?" She's like, "I'm just kidding. I'm just teasing you." She said, "I know you don't want to be a prosecutor anymore." <laughs> well uh before we go can you tell people where they can find more of your music like your website or your or where you are in social media and that kind of stuff of course of course so as you probably heard i'm not on snapchat <laughs> <laughs> don't go looking but, for frank uh, there i'm sure i have an account from many years ago and now my password is, is down in the ocean like the heart of the ocean from titanic <laughs> but I'm on Instagram. Uh, you can follow me at Frank Duarte Official. That's my Instagram. And um, I, I'm Facebook, obviously, uh, like billions of people are. Yep. And uh, my website is frankduarte.com. Very simple, pretty vanilla, straight to the point. Uh, you can Google me and I'm usually uh, maybe the second, third entry on there. Not a lot of people have my last name, so I'm pretty easy to find. Awesome. Well, once again, welcome to Adjective, and thank you so much for doing this, Frank. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today, Robert. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about Adjective New Music or Lexical Tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.